This is The Lad with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing Demolition Man. I'll kick us off. Demolition Man came out in 1993. The film begins in 1996, where an explosion of crime has enveloped Los Angeles. A fellow played by Wesley Snipes has started a hostage crisis, and a cop played by Sylvester Stallone goes to save the day. Stallone is a loose cannon, but the film implies that Snipes is so dastardly that only someone like Stallone can deal with him. Stallone and Snipes have a confrontation that results in Snipes' arrest, but their combat kicks off a series of explosions that destroys the building they are in. When the hostages' bodies are discovered amid the rubble, Stallone is blamed for their deaths, even though, as it turns out, they were already dead when he arrived. Both Stallone and Snipes are imprisoned in a cryogenic chamber and defrosted in the year 2032. In 2032, Los Angeles has merged with San Diego and Santa Barbara into a giant metropolis called San Angeles. All of the violent people have been systematically incarcerated, and there has not been a single murder since 2010. This has all been achieved by a fellow played by Nigel Hawthorne, Yes, the Nigel Hawthorne, the one who plays Sir Humphrey in Yes, Minister. He is once again here to play the face of the faceless bureaucracy. Under his regime, everything that is bad for you is illegal, including meat, table salt, swearing, procreating without a license, all sorts of stuff. Violence is so rare that the police are often bored. When something does go wrong, they don't know what to do. And so when Wesley Snipes exploits a parole hearing to escape from prison, the police are powerless to stop him. They defrost Stallone and send him in pursuit of Snipes. As Stallone chases Snipes around, he discovers that beneath San Angeles there lies an undercity. In this undercity there lives a group of outcasts. These outcasts steal food and paint graffiti on buildings, but they are mostly pretty harmless. Their leader is much too libertarian to embrace the leadership role that is attributed to him. Nevertheless, Nigel Hawthorne takes these outcasts very seriously indeed. They are the last remaining source of opposition to his bureaucratic rule, and he considers them a revolutionary threat. As it turns out, this is why he defrosted Snipes in the first place. He wants Snipes to kill the man he believes to be the leader of the outcasts and then he wants to use the murder as an excuse to take his policies even further. Yes, Snipes is the Hamas of this film. His violence excuses the repressive regime. Therefore, he must reappear if only for the purposes of reminding everyone why the regime exists. Of course, when Stallone finds out about this, he's not having it. And so, in a series of action sequences, both Snipes and Hawthorne are eliminated from play. Through Stallone's actions, the people of the Undercity are able to return to the surface, where it is implied some sort of compromise will be brokered between them and the surface dwellers. We do then get something of a revolution in this film, but it is not a revolution of the working class. The people in the other Undercity are a kind of lumpen proletariat. They steal food to survive and eat burgers made from rat meat. They are also completely incapable of staging a revolution on their own. It is only because Stallone comes into the picture that they are able to demand change. Their revolution relies not merely on a man who is not from their class, but on a man who is not from their historical context. 
It is not just that a 20th century cop is required to catch a 20th century criminal. A 21st century revolution requires a 20th century man to get the job done. And it does not just require one man. When Stallone has the opportunity to shoot Hawthorne, he finds himself unable to do it. Instead, Hawthorne is killed by Snipes. It is only because Snipes betrays Hawthorne that Hawthorne is eliminated. If not for Snipes, Stallone would have had to make a tough call. Once both Hawthorne and Snipes are dealt with, Stallone gets out of the way. He recognizes that he is insufficiently familiar with the context to decide how the surface dwellers and the people of the Undercity are to get along. He assumes they will be able to work it out, but we never see them do it. So a 21st century revolution requires men of the 20th century, but those same men are not sufficiently acquainted with the 21st century to build a new regime that suits it. This means that the very people who were incapable of organizing revolution are themselves handed the keys. In this way, the film suggests several things. In the 21st century, we will become incapable of revolution, not just because we will become incapable of producing revolutionary subjects, but because even insofar as there are revolutionary subjects, these subjects will not be capable of constructing a regime that suits the conditions of the 21st century. This is, I think, prescient. Those who would do revolution have no compelling alternative system to offer, while those who might have ideas about other ways of living would never pursue them by revolutionary means. It's far from a perfect film. It's more than a bit cheesy in places. But I think Demolition Man holds up better than other films from the 80s and 90s that news about the future of American cities. There's more truth in Demolition Man than in RoboCop or Blade Runner. Despite what we might hear if we were to watch TV, murder rates are still much lower now than they were 30 years ago. There are some limitations in having the impersonal bureaucracy played by the person of Nigel Hawthorne. Sometimes in this film, it feels as if San Angeles is run according to his vision or his whims. This means that when he dies, the whole system dies with him. In Yes, Minister, Nigel Hawthorne is an evocative example of the bureaucratic mentality, but it is clear that this bureaucracy would exist with or without him, that it is Kafkaesque and does not require any particular person to go on functioning. The reduction of a faceless system to a single face makes replacing the system seem simpler than it is. Even if the film had treated the bureaucracy in a more impersonal way, we don't get a very strong feel for the other impersonal systems in which San Angeles plays a part. All we are really told is that, quote, nothing happens anymore. That line suggests something of an end of history narrative, a world along the lines of the one envisioned by Francis Fukuyama. As David Cameron takes over as foreign secretary in the UK, I can't help but feel that this is broadly right. We still live in the end of history, as much as we'd like to escape it. It'd be nice if there were a way out, but it seems the way is shut. Oh, geez. If I'm going to descend into self-referential <laughs> jokes about the title of my book, I'd best pass the buck to Nina. Let's see what Nina thinks. <laughs> oh, don't be so humble. I think you could, could, we could say more about, you know, the way being shut. Um... Yeah, this was this was great fun. I can't believe I've never seen this film before. Um, it must have came out when I was at school, so I would have been I don't know, thirteen or fourteen when this film was out. But I don't, I didn't see it at the time. Uh, yeah, I it probably would have changed my life had we had I watched it in nineteen ninety three. No, it, it's it's interesting to watch a film 
uh, from this vantage, I suppose, that is sort of relentlessly fun. Like, you know, films have become so contemporary films, not all, but, you know, in, in many cases have become sort of relentlessly dominated by a sort of seriousness, uh, both in the popular form and in the and the kind of art house form. Um, and it's actually just very, very enjoyable to watch a film that is, frankly, game is the only word I can think of to describe it. Like it, it's sort of just like Sandra Bullock's character is just incredibly fun and just kind of up for everything. Uh, I mean, of course, she's conditioned by her contemporary era, but she has this fetish for the 90s. Um, she still understands on some kind of uh, deep level the connection between sexual arousal and violence. Um, you know, she's she's very, very human and she's very, very funny. Uh, and it's actually quite uh, interesting to see a female character done in this way, because I think for a long time, female characters have become incredibly sort of worthy um, and they're not allowed to have any sort of flaws and and from the standpoint of the film setting she's a she's a deeply um subversive character because she she doesn't uh enjoy the the piece that has been precisely created for her you know in this contemporary culture is uh very much we have to say uh, uh an extension of the politically correct culture which had its first iteration in the 90s but didn't succeed in the same way that what we might call woke culture has today and it's very interesting that the the culture in the film um is it 2036 or I can't remember which year it is 2032 2032 so you know we're actually closer I think to the the year of the film than the year the film was made and the year the film was set as originally so so came out in 93 the first part is set in 96 and then it's 2032 right Okay, yes. so we're kind of we're literally in the middle of these these dates, but I suppose the the you know the interesting thing is that the extension of PC culture that's imagined is predicated precisely on all of the things that have been invoked increasingly. So trauma, harm, safety, you know, everything must be good for you. At one point, the character says, "Well, it's bad for you, therefore it's not good," or "It's not good for you, therefore it's bad." You know, this is the logic, right? So, like you say, everything is. Everything that is potentially harmful is is uh, is eliminated. Um, whether it's you know cigarettes, meat, alcohol, um, so on and so forth. And um, what's really funny about this is precisely how that renders the society incapable of conceiving of a different worldview. And I actually think this is a very serious point. It's a very profound point that's being made in the film, which is not only to do with the kind of history of ruins and the way in which we um, we have to foreclose the possibility of understanding previous cultures, even insofar as we imagine them, we can imagine them, right? So the reason why I mentioned this is a scene in the museum where they have the kind of armory, they, they historicize the use of violent weapons, just as we do when we have history museums filled with blunderbusses and cannons. But they also have a kind of underground scene, again, just as we do when we have look at the Roman ruins or so on, um, of the 20th century in the 21st century museum. And of course, the, the sociopathic programmed Wesley Snipes is an incredible villain in this film, uh, extremely funny villain, um, runs to, to the ancient weapons in order to kind of uh, to attract them. But they both fall through the ruins. It's a beautiful scene where they fall through the glass ceiling of the museum back into the, the real ruins 
and 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 have a violent in, uh, altercation in the ruins of the 20th century um but the the serious point about this is that the liberalism in its extended version right so in the kind of fully um bureauc- bureaucratized um sort of liberal utopia imagined by the 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 kind of you know the sort of i don't know the sort of peaceful fiora if you like that it is impossible to imagine sociopathy and human pathology from this position right for for the vast majority of people this is why the police are rendered completely inoperative because they don't they're no longer any conception of violence they they have no violence in themselves it's all been eradicated even if you swear you're punished by some kind of credit system um so there's this kind of breeding in a nietzschean sense out of violence right so how you know when nietzsche and the genealogy talks about how do you breed a an animal that can promise well actually it's it's through the use of violence and the kind of repetition even the the creation of memory in the human is a function or a consequence not of conscience not of some moral values Nietzsche claims, but rather of uh, base material forms of violence or the threat of violence. Here you have the eradication of violence through, um, I suppose, forms of punishment that are not in themselves violent, but are but operate in a different kind of way. And I think this is something we need to to come back to because it's a, a different system of of control and domination, like in in as presented in this film. But the 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 desire of the the leader um to to assassinate his political enemy or perceived political enemy requires of course the resurrection of violence which has been deemed historically um over right so of course so the wesley snipes character is resurrected uh, in order to commit a political assassination at least that's the plan um of course the problem in in invoking violence or creating uh the violent uh, con- command in the other is that you ultimately have no control over it, right? And this is what we see over and over again in American foreign policy, for example, when it invests in terrorist organizations in order to neutralize another enemy, but then loses control of those organizations again, right? Because you can't control pathology or sociopathy or violence once you've used violence to create those groups or to uh, encourage them, right? So liberalism is defeated by its own inability to ima- not only imagine sociopathy and the the kind of extreme the extreme ends of human behavior or and indeed imagine that you can eliminate them but also by pretending that it is kind and calm and bureaucratic and ordered but is secretly dependent in fact on uh, the existence of violence and men who are who are willing to commit violence um, and it's very interesting, the scene where, where Sylvester Stallone knocks out the Sandra Bullock character who wants to accompany him in the final uh, showdown. And for her own safety, he performs violence upon her by rendering her unconscious. A very interesting moment in this in this film, I think. Also to do with the relationship between men and women as understood from the standpoint of difference rather than from this kind of fake liberal utopia of sameness um, and and in the final scene, they resurrect the kiss, the famous kiss at the end of uh, the world uh, World War Two, which was captured, where I think the soldier kisses or a sailor sailor I think kisses the kisses a woman, a stranger in a um, 
a post-war parade, right? I, if you know that famous photograph. And that photograph itself has been, been highly criticised um, because the, the pose of the woman is supposed to indicate that she is unwilling, in fact, to be kissed. You know, that this, this photograph is seen as a romantic image, but has also been read as a forced a forceful image, an image that in fact captures a woman who is unwilling to be kissed in this way. Um, it's a very ambivalent image. They recreate in the final scene, and then slightly afterwards, Sandra Bullock kisses Sylvester Stallone forcefully herself, right? So there's a kind of reconciliation of that moment of the um, hierarchy and dominance in its playful mode, right? So it's reversed in a playful way. And I think this is the solution, quote unquote, at the end of the film, everything's still on fire. Everyone is not going to agree. There are all of these different groups. You have the kind of, um, how do you put it? The, the, the guy who will slide between any regime, like the toady. There's a, there's a sort of overweight, slimy, very cucked guy who is like the kind of, um, uh, the courtier of the any regime, and he kind of keeps offering his services to all of the different leaders um, in order not to sort of be killed, right? And we, we all know these people. Um, and, you know, and, and the whole of the future is extremely cucked, we would have to say, right? It's like very, very sort of fake and gay, um, as Frog Twitter would say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, then what you have actually at the end is a kind of really intriguing plurality. You have the sort of underclass who've come up from the from the, the sewers, who are all actually quite fun, good guys. They like a beer. I don't know how they're still making beer. I mean, that's a little bit far-fetched in the, but you know, they have a microbrewery in the, and along with their rat burgers in the, in the sewers. Uh, you have the sort of, you know, the, the previously bureaucratized uh, sort of PC people. You have sort of Stallone and, and that kind of like memory of, of uh, a relationship of, uh, you know, the relationship between sex and violence and a kind of libidinal but humorous way of seeing the world. And I think in a way this film is a is a sort of defense of the nineties solution, quote unquote, to the the reality of agonism and pluralism, which is in fact our reality, which is often forgotten, I would say, by people on the left who want to see want to think that there is a kind of solution to all social problems and they know it if only people would go along with it and they would understand how things work and you know how can we get rid of all of these reactionary people and you know rather than talk to them we, we just dismiss them um or a kind of nihilistic sort of acceptance of how things are um you know it's difficult not to fall into that i must say i mean you mentioned david cameron you know the uk is sort of uh, i don't know in some kind of obscene collapse, um, <laughs> return, nostalgia, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very, um, corrupt and very unstable, um, you know, but it's, it's all just a kind of elite game, you know, and it's very hard not to see it, uh, in this way that the vast majority of people's views and opinions and feelings and desires are ignored. Uh, the country just kind of keeps falling apart. Everything is not working. It's getting worse and worse. Um, and so on and so forth. So, but I, I think I really just to just to conclude, I, I just think this this idea of like everyone being a bit game is great. You know, it's a very very funny film. I even didn't mind the violences. I normally don't like them, but because they were sort of making a point about you know the connection between humanity and violence, I found them sort of it, you know inherently amusing. 
um, and both the villain and the hero are, and, and the, the female lead are, are all sort of strikingly funny. Um, and I think it's just very playful. And yeah, I, 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 really, uh, I really enjoyed this film. So, so thank you for choosing it, Benjamin. I'm glad you had such a good time with it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't talk a lot about the Sandra Bullock character, but she is really interesting in part because she has a, you know, she loves the past, but she's still very much a product of her contemporary society. So she constantly misinterprets uh, things from the past that she does manage to encounter. She gets all the idioms wrong. She, you know, there's all sorts of gaps in her knowledge or understanding of the past and I very much see in her the person who wants to talk about you know, the early 20th century or the 19th century, other periods of history in our society who doesn't really grasp what was going on in its full complexity, the context, uh, but who is nonetheless kind of enthused about that period, has a little bit of a return attitude, but doesn't fully comprehend what that would entail or involve. I, very much there's that kind of thing all over the internet. And in part, you can have that because that uh, it's always deracinated. Even in her nostalgia for that past, it has to be deracinated in her understanding of it because she comes from a context that's so fully different. It can't have the threat in it that it uh, actually does have when, in fact, you do get these guys and they come back. Yeah, I, I got a real kick out of her character, even though at the time people... Uh, picked on that performance. She was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for it, actually, uh, which really? is, I, I, yeah, I think that's kind of stunning. But it seems to me that she really understands her role because, you know, she's playing this character, like you say, precisely, who's kind of caught between two worlds and, you know, has a kind of fetish for the 90s and, and, the, and um, a certain fantasy of violence in real life. You know, but then when confronted with it, doesn't actually know what to do with it. Like the sex scene, for example, is extremely funny, right? This is also at the time when Lawnmower Man and this kind of, you know, cyber utopian ideas about like teledildonics and virtual sex were floating around, right? So there's a very, very amusing scene where, where Sandra Bullock, and it's actually funny because in terms of the continuity of the film or the structure of the film, the sex scene comes in the middle, right? Which is, unusual right because normally it's like the denouement or whatever right but she she in her deeply modern way proposes sex to the Sylvester Sloan character because she's aroused in a confused way by his violent behavior early on but then it turns out that sex in this period is virtual right so so she puts a little headset on him and they sit down together and you know these images flash up and uh, and of course it's 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 actually kind of um you know, horrific in the way that 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 is like that. The idea that this this is uh, what sex has become is this completely detached, mediated virtual experience. And but she's so sort of sincere about it because obviously her desire really is to have sex. But this is what sex is in twenty thirty two or whatever. So you know, and and he's actually very very gracious in his sort of bemused confusion really about what is going on and and uh you know when she's talking about fluid exchange and she says well even you know mouth fluid exchange is banned and he said oh it's a shame I I I used to be such a good kisser um and all of these little jokes and and the fact that when he was cryogenically frozen he was also programmed to to learn how to knit as well right so there's a kind of really amusing feminization of the masculine hero 
as well, which is, again, extremely playful, you know, and her sort of masculinity and her kind of, you know, wanting to be uh, joined in with the kind of libidinal uh, thrust. And, and, you know, I actually think she's, I think she, Sandra Bullock gets her character. I think it's exactly poised. I'm, I'm quite surprised to hear that she was criticized for this role. Yes, I think part of how we got here is that already in the 90s, a lot of people thought that that kind of role was uh, inappropriate. And so I think that the roots of, of where we are is already present in the way that people reacted to her at the time. Uh, one thing I do think that the film gets wrong is the level to which it places emphasis on the nanny state directly regulating with the law behavior. Whereas what we do seem to have today, a lot of this is laundered through the workplace and through the threat of punishment in the workplace, either through denying people access to a job, firing people, not promoting people, paying people less than you otherwise might, or promoting them slower than you might otherwise. Uh, these are the things that seem to be uh, perform these coercive functionings, especially in terms of language policing. It's not as if every time you swear, you know, you have violated the Verbal Moralities Act and you have to pay a fine. It's that if you say the wrong kinds of things, then there will be nebulous career consequences that are never made clear to you, that are not precise in character, that you can't interrogate, that you can't challenge in any kind of meaningful way. And so they operate as this opaque, scary thing that might happen to you if you say the wrong thing. And I think in that respect, it's more dystopian than this situation where you know very clearly what will cause you to be fine. And it's a fine of one credit and you pay the fine and that's the end of it. In many ways, I think that's more humane, but unfortunately, <laughs> we do it in this very ad hoc, nasty, nebulous way that causes people to self-censor because they have no idea what will provoke this reaction. They don't know how big the reaction will be. And they have no recourse for challenging the reaction, whatever its form. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think there's, you know, the the film is is on some level a, a kind of comedy um, of a slightly strange kind. But uh, but yes, and 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 in a way, it it sort of has to very quickly represent this form of the dystopian utopian future, right? So this is how it d does it by by showing these machines and. And and some of it is accurate, I I think. And but you're right that that, that it doesn't capture the 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 kind of deeper and more cryptic sense of self surveillance and censorship and you know pronoun use and whatever else you know stupid things that we're supposed to obey um, now. Like swearing is too obvious in a way. It's like you know that's that's more like a kind of older morality of you know, which is like maybe Christian or something, you know, like don't swear, don't take the Lord's name in vain, you know. But yeah, I think the language policing thing now is is much more amorphous, much more ambiguous. Um, it, what what do people do in the future in this film? They kind of walk around with robes. They're wearing like these strange... It's also, like, also this interesting thing about Japan because remember in the 90s, Japan was like the great economic success right and uh, and you have this in Blade Runner too like there's a kind of fetishization of Japan as the future I, I think in that case because the characters that wear the Japanese style outfits are the characters who run the society and who are the faces of the bureaucracy I think that's a joke about mandarins specifically okay like a historical joke 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's the man. You know, the term Mandarin used yeah. to be used to refer to a bureaucrat. Yeah. Today, that would not be considered politically correct. But I think that film in 1993 <laughs> is just making that joke. Oh, okay. I thought it was something to do with this, like, image. Anyway. But yeah, no, they, that view might be more interesting than what they were actually doing. But I do think <laughs> it was just straightforwardly a joke about mandarins. Fair enough. Um, nevertheless, there is a kind of oriental sheen to much of the sort of image of the, the future. Uh, this, this sort of, you know, at least superficially benign, uh, peaceful, mellow, Thing. And I mean, it was actually very interesting, like where the use of almost like Siri type computer thing, which is something that was indeed imagined in loads of different forms before we had a version of the personal secretary computer. But the, in the early scenes, there's when the Wesley Snipes character has just escaped and he's ca- going to use the terminal, which are more like public telephone computers, not like personal computers. But there's a man, a sort of nervous man who's using the, the computer terminal for therapy, right? And it is actually very interesting because we do have like now AI therapy bots that people use. And the computer is sort of saying to him, hey, hey, Joy, it's okay. People think you're great, right? Or some sort of banality, right? In this way. We only just got to that just very recently. That became a part of the film that's true. Right. And, And there is something kind of very intriguing about that idea that actually... You know, we are looking at a future in which, you know, that is disembodied, that is not violent, that, you know, where violence is 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 sort of, you know, the worst thing that can can happen and is sort of unimaginable and and so on. I mean, yeah, it's happening in a telephone booth, which, of course, does not make sense. No, no, that's what I was saying. I mean, these the the terminals are public, right? It's still based on a public telephone model. Right. So they're not. Um, at home, although, uh, you know, when you do see the insides of the houses, they're also sort of a bit controlled in this way. I don't know, like they have automatic machine type things. Um, yeah, I don't know. Everyone listens to adverts. That's that's what they listen to for music. They listen to, they fetishize old advert advert jingles and so on. Yeah, because they're not actually allowed to listen to the music that was popular in the 20th century, the way that they nonetheless can act out this nostalgia for history is to listen to the jingles and the commercials and these things that are deracinated. So they have access to a past, but it's a past that's been curated for them to prevent them from encountering the things from the past that would be disruptive. Yeah. And also it's kind of weird because they all restaurants are Taco Bells in the film. And I looked up that in, but in different countries, when this film came out, they changed that to Pizza Hut because Pizza Hut had more recognition, brand recognition than Taco Bell. But in the film, the Sandra Bullock character mentions that there has been like a franchise war or something like this, like a monopolies war, and that Taco Bell won, and now all restaurants are Taco Bell, which is also like quite odd. I don't know exactly the significance of Taco Bell specifically, but maybe this is something you can talk about well yeah i think they were looking to just pick something that would sound a bit random to (laughs) suggest this general trend toward consolidation Uh, but but yeah i I don't think that's actually happened because if we look at restaurants there's instead been this a kind of fetish for the independent restaurant yeah craft brewery and uh, you know the independent coffee shop there's been a lot of of resistance in that particular respect 
which yeah. I think makes a certain amount of sense when you're talking about eating. Variety is part of what people seek out with restaurants. So it would be hard to actually convince people that every time they want to go out to eat, they want to go to the same place. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was a curious aspect of this film. I mean, I yeah. think... What would make more sense is to have a giant company that owns all of the different chains. Yes. I think that would be more realistic. No, that's true. Because it's like there are like four companies that own like, you know, 400 brands, right? At least like Kraft right. and whoever else. I don't know. Like, And they still maintain the distinctiveness. Even yeah. on the internet, you know, WhatsApp and Messenger are both owned by Meta. Mm. But... They have a little bit of a different feel. And in terms of the branding, WhatsApp talks about how you you have encryption and it's private and Messenger, you know, who cares because you're on Messenger, you don't care. So uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's obviously connected to Facebook. I don't think any of these things are secure or private. I mean, if somebody wants to, to spy your messages, they can. I mean, like, you Right, know. but the person who uses WhatsApp, and that, you know, used to yeah. use WhatsApp because they wanted that. So Facebook talks that up when they advertise WhatsApp. So they haven't merged those things together. It's not as if Facebook went, oh, we own both no. of these messenger apps. Let's just put them together into one app. No, let's have these things be a little bit different for these different people who were drawn to them for different reasons. But mm. let's make sure that the people who do go to WhatsApp are still using an app that's owned by us. Yeah, that's right. So I think I think one thing it gets wrong, and and I mean like get wrong in inverted commas. I mean it's a it's a funny film. It's not like trying yeah. to predict the future, right? So so let's be let's be, let's be like it's close it. enough but that we it, can have some fun with it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think yeah. That but that's I, part I think of what this, makes it a good film. But I think yeah. But I think in general, there's this idea that the future will be homogenous. Like you know, when we imagine when people imagine the future, it's usually oh, it's a homogenous kind of society, right? Like, so that's, you know, or the restaurants being the same, everyone wearing the same robe, type of robes, you know, but actually that the future doesn't necessarily have to be homogenous in this way at all. It could still be governed in, in the same way, but it could look different, right? It could have superficial difference, um, which I think is more, like you say, what we have. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, the state is too sort of directly prevalent here, I think. Like, there isn't really enough ideology of the, of the kind that you're referring to, which is the, would be the kind of self-policing. Can I say this at work? Will I get in trouble? You know. Yeah, there's more punishment than disciplining in this film. Yeah, it, exactly, exactly. And it, But it is funny. I mean, the, the, the idea of this kind of benign sort of, you know, quasi-fascistic state that doesn't allow you to do anything because it's bad for you, um, you know, really, there is this strain of like safetyism, and you know, in my lifetime, things like uh, smoking have been massively uh, socially um, low, become low, low status. You know, there've been loads of local legislation. I mean, when I was growing up, you could smoke in loads of places, and if you go to the pub, people would smoke in the pub. You know that until quite recently, right? Like it, it wasn't that unusual. I worked for a guy in an office who chain smoked cigars um, when I was a teenager. I don't know. Like it's it's actually really hard to imagine those things. What's interesting is how quickly things can change. I suppose how we get used to different regimes or different aspects of different regimes. We can totally see the ban on meat in this kind of plant based eco movement you know lots of people are vegetarian and vegan for environmental reasons 
um, amongst others. Yes, though in this film it seems that it gets banned for health reasons rather than environmental. Oh, that's true because it. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Because in the but in the nineties there was this kind of health based campaign against meat because it was like supposed to be bad for your heart or something. I mean, it's, it's not true, but that, that yeah, was... there was a kind of anti-fat, uh, <laughs> anti-red meat, anti-fat diet fat. Yeah, yeah, which is bollocks, you know. Before the low-carb stuff, it was anti-fat. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there, there was this kind of thing about, yeah, like things being bad for you. You know, sex um, after AIDS was really kind of like changed, you know, like the attitude towards change. It was heavily, like if you watched MTV in the 90s, Every 30 seconds, there was like a condom advert. Um, you know, it was very, very heavily pushed. Like the late 80s, I think we got those leaflets about AIDS, like with the big black iceberg, you know, it was really like everyone's going to die. You know, there was a serious scare campaign around HIV and AIDS. And, you know, and, and, and that was really pushing a different attitude towards sex. So like the sexual revolution kind of happens I mean, it's still happening, but it gets highly transformed and transfigured um, a great deal. Um, even though, like, as we know, HIV and AIDS doesn't really, like, affect the heterosexual community in the West, particularly, um, you could say this was, like, over-caution. You, you could say maybe there's something else going on here. There was, a, there was a concerted effort to reduce teen pregnancies in the 90s. They were still happening. They're no longer happening. Uh, I was just reading a very interesting book recently, um, called The Two-Parent Privilege by Melissa um, Kearney. Uh, it's a recent American book um, in which she she's an economist and it's very, very reasonable and analytic and clear. Um, and she makes the extraordinarily clear argument, basically, that, you know, children with two parents just do better on every metric. Like, you know, there's just no way around it. Like they just have better resources and so on. But one of the interesting things she points out is that actually there's been an enormous decline amongst all groups, all racial groups, all economic classes um, in terms of teenage pregnancies since the 90s. So something is happening there, right? Like that was happening when we were when we were younger. I mean, there were definitely still girls in my school getting pregnant as teenagers. Not very many, but a few. And I think since then it doesn't really happen or it happens incredibly, incredibly rarely. I don't know if just those girls are having abortions or whether they're just not getting pregnant or they're just not having sex. Statistically, they're having less sex. Yeah, they're having less For sex. For sure. That's at sure. least one of the things that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually do have this kind of move towards a virtualized, you know, uh, an anti-sex culture, right? Even though it, at the same time, it's completely saturated with virtual sex and pornography. And of course, people in pornography are having sex, right? Well, um, and, and cyber sex, people you right. know, having sex on a webcam, which is that, that dissimilar to what we see in the film. No, exactly. have sex with each other while sitting apart and, and uh, yeah wearing tech. Yeah, no, no, ex exactly. So in that sense, that trajectory is, has definitely kind of come to pass. Um, you know, even though, yeah, like, I guess you have multiple things going on at once. I mean, like on the dating apps, you know, I mean, if you want to have casual sex with some random person, you can also do that, right? Whether you're gay or straight, like that's also going on at the same time. It's like you say, younger people are having less sex in general, like than we did in the nineties or eighties or whatever. Yeah, like um, with many things, there's a bifurcation into one set of people who are going really hard <laughs> and another set of people that is, I think, a larger 
and yeah. more representative sample that are just backing away completely. And in my book, I talk about this in relation to politics. Some people have become hyper-political and they're very heavily invested in every single cultural antagonism. But I think at the same time, there is a larger set of people who are exhausted by politics and backing away from it. I think the same thing has basically happened with sex, where you have a small number of people who are having a ton of sex, probably more than anybody's ever had through these dating apps that make it yeah. very, very easy to do. And then you've got a much larger number of people who are looking at this and going, this is just not something I want to be involved with. All of this is really you know, uh, you know, repulsive or, or unpleasant stuff. And I just want to get away from it. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that I think that's right. And I, I suppose it's a yeah, it's like in this film, it's a, it's a snapshot of a dominant culture, right? Like, so if we did a, a sort of quasi realistic snapshot of our dominant culture, we would have to look at precisely these tendencies and say, okay, it's not exactly like this. There are things that are going on at the edges. But overall, the trajectory is like towards, you know, like the elimination of smoking, for example, or the policing of one's own speech in the workplace, or the reduction of flirtation in places that are not like, you know, now it, it, it's no longer acceptable to flirt at work, for example, or whatever. Um, very loud minorities are getting their way on a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. you know, people who are very, very loud about how they don't like something or how they do like something, uh, are, you know, insisting that the rest of us permit. And the thing is, I think at this point, a lot of people just have this generally permissive attitude. If somebody really cares about something, you know, what skin is it off your nose to get out of the way of it? Yeah. And that, I think, has been the general trend large number of people who don't really want to have to be involved with a lot of these questions, uh, just saying, whatever you guys want, just stop screaming at us. Yeah, exactly. But this is precisely, again, to go back to this, the problem and the limitation, also the, the genius of liberalism, right? Because, you know, ostensibly, like everyone is sort of allowed to do, you know, live and let live, you know, believe how you want to believe, you know, think about the foundation of white Western America, like the, the Mayflower and so on. It's, it's like, we want the freedom to think the things we want to think. We want freedom of religion, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression. Great, 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 great. So, so we all accept this fundamentally. We're like, we're all liberal subjects, right? But the problem is precisely what happens in this film is, is if you do not understand how humanity also includes its own pathology, and that extreme positions, however loudly they shout and however much they say they're the victim and however much they say you should do what I want, right, will destroy the whole. <laughs> you know, that this is this is pre precisely the problem. If the vast majority of people go along out of fear or cowardice or laziness, largely, with the desires and the demands of a very small number of people, these demands and desires will encroach increasingly on everyone else's right and desire to be left alone, right? And this is what happens. This is how I think liberalism rots from the inside because nobody is prepared to stand up in the name of reasonableness because actually it's very hard to defend reasonableness and to be a kind of, you know, sensible person and say, hang on, because especially if people are being rewarded, as we, we often discuss, for extremes of position, for, you know, uh, for taking a hard line, for being hyper-political, for being passionate, for being hysterical, and so on and so forth, right? So so the reasonable person just disappears, and they are nowhere to be found. 
And then they're sort of left there in the end going, I, you know, I just want people to get along and live and let live. And, you know, and meanwhile, all of their sort of rights and, and so on are being kind of eroded. Uh, and no one is allowed to make a joke anymore. And yes, I am a middle-aged gammon. And, you know, <laughs> it's gone too far. You can't say anything these days. Well, I think that we you know, have a lot of people who have relatively moderate positions on most cultural and social issues. And because they have relatively moderate positions, they're not inclined to put a bunch of their time and energy into those issues. I think that is a reasonable attitude to have. I think that the trouble is that once you start trying to do something about your, your uh, moderate positions on these issues, you end up getting into spaces where very, very immediately it's demanded that you take hard stances and that you comply with the hyper-political orientation of the other people who talk about those issues. And then when you don't do it, you get it from both sides and both people scream at you and say to you that uh, you're the problem and you don't get very far with it. And because people don't get very far with it, they end up just getting exhausted and going, what's the point? How can I say this in such a way that, that people will care? And the thing is that the people who are dominating these discussions don't care. And their goal is to marginalize those people and get them to shut up. And, and that's why they use all of this language in that kind of way. Yeah. And I um, was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, is there some way of building, say, a, a left politics around something like a commitment to civil liberties you know, that would include, say, some of the civil liberties complaints that we might associate with the right? And I think that while that uh, you know, may sound attractive, the trouble is that it's not possible to get into these cultural issues in a way that doesn't have this cleaving effect, which forces you into uh, a more polarized box, if only because the moderate position will not be acceptable. It will be assumed that if you take the moderate position, you must secretly be one of the extremes and you're just you know, uh, not admitting it. And you'll get accused of being in the opposite camp and you'll get put in this situation where you don't have much room to maneuver and people are throwing fascist and throwing communist at you, you know, those labels that they're trying to stick on you so that they can shove you into the other box and get rid of you. This just makes it very hard to do any kind of politics around this stuff uh, unless you are already willing to just uh, adopt one of the, the boxes. And then when you're adopting one of the boxes, you're not really at that point, trying to create a moderate, reasonable mm. alternative to the culture war, you are, you're just sucked into it. It has this assimilating tendency to make everybody who participates in it become just another version of the extremity that is driving everybody crazy. Yeah, no, 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 exactly. And it's, it's kind of, you know, both difficult, but necessary to kind of hold the line, right? And say, for example, like we need to talk about this when people are making crazy proposals and demanding that everyone go along with it, you know, and, and this is this is part of the problem, right? You know, you're right. It's uh, I mean, the latest South Park is kind of about this. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like, oh, I want to see it. I haven't seen it. Yet. It's, it's pretty good. I mean, it's a, it's called the Pandaverse and it's precisely about this sort of partly about the, the, the kind of woke and the reactive, you know, the reaction to woke being, you know, two sides of the same problem. And how that kind of dynamic is um, reinforced by both sides, actually, and and that that no one can ever really understand who started it, right? Like that there is, and this is a this is a general problem because 
much bigger than culture wars, but like wars in general, like who started it, right? Like whose fault was it? I mean, this goes back to Adam and Eve. Or yeah, like, nobody started it. And right. The issue is that the whole conversation is occurring within a particular kind of political economy milieu. It's occurring mainly among professionals who are university educated uh, on both sides of that issue. That's the dominant you know, set of people who are talking. And therefore, there are certain kinds of rhetorical techniques that are effective in that setting. If you don't use those techniques, you don't make progress in that setting. However, if you use those techniques, then you are completely estranged from the ordinary person who is not comfortable in, can't participate in, and doesn't find those settings uh, functional for them. So when you try to get into this, you end up having to do all of the same things that the people already in the conversation are doing. The reason the conversation looks like this is not because bad people are having it or people who are, are wrong are having it. It's because the only spaces in which you can have these discussions are spaces in which the most competitive kind of rhetoric is this kind. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we both, we see both the kind of elimination of certain language, but also the devaluation of certain language. You know, clearly, I think terms like fascist no longer hold the same power that they did. Or genocide for that matter. Well, yeah, exactly. Like we've had genocide inflation, we've had fascism inflation, you know, and this isn't good. Like it's not good when, when these words are denuded of their, their accuracy, right? Like, because they, they do mean, they do refer to something <laughs> like words mean things, right? This, and this is a very old fashioned People view. think if they can, if they can take their word and they can apply it to something, uh, you know, they think that they're going to get the benefit of the word. So if you yeah. can call a speech act violence, then people will take it seriously yeah. in the way they take violence seriously. Instead, the effect is to cause people to not take violence seriously and to exactly. water down the, ta you know, the taboos against anything that goes by that name. So then you have to come up with some other word that's more extreme to describe it than violence. So then it's, it's fascism or it's genocide or something. And this... This is robbing us of the words that we would need to meaningfully talk about actual, genuinely heinous and horrible stuff. But the thing is, it's not possible for really heinous and horrible stuff to happen anymore. So it's not necessary today for those words to even be retained because nobody can actually imagine doing the things uh, to which they really refer. But by pretending that we have the threats in our society that we had in the middle of the 20th century, that we have these you know, really you know, out there projects that are still operating, we could pretend that we're in a much more interesting period with much more political possibility than we really have. Right. And and meanwhile, people are still dying in wars and, and groups of people are still being eliminated by other groups of people, right? And some wars people pay attention to and some wars people don't, right? I mean, death is death, right? Being, being killed in a war is being killed in a war. Like... Yes, uh, but... We don't take it as seriously as we did, in part because the scale is different. We don't have as many people die generally in conflicts as we used to. The mortality rate per unit of population wars is not as high as it was in the World War era. Uh, but we have to talk about it as if it is, because that seems to be the only way to get people to care. So you have to invoke these terms, which obviously don't apply. None of the wars that are currently happening are like World War II in any meaningful way. Uh, none of them. But people feel the need to use the terminology they would use in World War II to make 
it feel meaningful to get people to discuss it. And on the internet, using the terminology that's used in World War II drives engagement. And if you don't use that terminology, then you're at a disadvantage. So people are compelled by the market mechanisms through which this discussion takes place to use this terminology. And then they rationalize the use of the terminology with you know, stuff they pull from the academy that says, you know, actually, violence can be used to discuss these things. And actually, genocide should be understood in this broader way. Uh, and this provides an excuse for doing it. But the effect of it is that we are no longer even capable of referring to this, the distinct and different thing that, say, the Holocaust was, or World War II was, or you know, the Russian Revolution was. It, you know, these are dramatic acts that are, we don't have these kinds of things. We have uh, limited words. We have, uh, you know, states do not use all of the resources at their disposal to win conflicts. States are constantly holding back and deciding how far are they willing to take something before uh, that introduces too much risk. In, in this post-nuclear weapons world, there is always this sense that you can't take things too far, that you have to limit how far you go, because if you go too far, there will be this escalation into the kind of conflict which World War II was. World War II is a conflict where if you have nuclear weapons, you use them. If you have anything, you use it. Whatever you have, you use it because it's a desperate, totalizing, existential conflict. Mm -hmm. And there's no limit on what you do. And you don't think twice before bombing the living hell out of Dresden. And for, for anybody to suggest that Dresden is a reason for any state to bomb any place in that kind of indiscriminate and totalizing way, it's ridiculous that people are suggesting, oh, you know, during Dresden... We did this thing. So, you know, why can't Israel do it? Or why can't the Russians do it? This is a ridiculous way of thinking. Uh, you know, what is all of this stuff is meant to be completely, completely off the table. Mm -hmm. So when you start referring to the stuff that does happen with the terms that are used to describe things that are completely off the table, it uh, just muddles our understanding of, of where we are and what people can actually do and what people are actually willing to do, which is much less in nearly every case than they were willing to do in the middle of the 20th century. That's not to say that there aren't certain conflicts that are very, very bloody and violent, you know, particularly uh, you know, conflicts that have occurred in Africa, like in the Sudan, for instance. Now, there's some very, very violent conflicts in certain parts of the world, but that that huge amounts of bombing and the willingness right. to use any weapon you can come up with and you know, uh, uh, closing down international trade for the purposes of waging a totalizing war, uh, making the population accept you know, ra a rationing system, uh, changing the whole workforce over from you know, butter to guns. These are things we just don't do. We don't mobilize our societies for totalizing wars. Even the Russians haven't mobilized their society for a totalizing war. Uh, they're not willing to do the kinds of things that they would have done in World War II. They can compare it to World War II all they want in their propaganda. They're not actually willing to do any of the things that the Soviet state did uh, to actually win that war. Uh, because it would, the cost of it would not be something people would be willing to bear. Uh, people do not accept these arguments that this is really like World War II. They don't. Uh, they mm -hmm. pretend that they do. And the professionals who are marketing these wars to people pretend that they actually view this as something like World War II. But none of these people would actually pay the cost if they actually had yeah. to pay the cost 
of the disruption of the supply chains, the, the rationing, the uh, you know, seizure of wealth from rich people, enormous confiscations of wealth for the purposes of funding war. None of these people are prepared to do any of this. They start to get annoyed even when it's you know, $100 billion to Ukraine. Uh, oh, my God, this is you know, so much money. But if you were to look at percentages of GDP that we used to spend on war and conflict, I mean, even Iraq. Even Iraq was a much bigger war than any of these wars are in terms of the cost, in terms of what the United States laid out to accomplish that. People go, oh, how can the United States do Ukraine and, and uh, Palestine at the same time? The United States spent exponentially more money on Iraq uh, every year than it's spending in total on all of this. And, and there's just no sense for the scale of it, in part because our terminology has become mm. so garbled. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think this, this, you know, maybe this is a kind of philosophical naivety on my part. But, you know, if we think of language on the one hand as a, as a kind of tool of clarification and, and, and sort of um, conceptual accuracy or, you know, just trying to, to work out whether we're using words in the same way and all of those sort of philosophical linguistic enterprises – on the one hand, right, you have that, <laughs> or, or the deeper question of whether language corresponds to reality at all, or, you know, but, and so on and so forth, right? But leave that to one side, you know, when we're, we're thinking about words as, as weapons, right, like to convey, as you're saying, a sense of urgency, or to, to make one's case seem more vital than someone else's case, this kind of war waged not sort of between words, but like with words, right? So the words themselves are kind of weapons. Then there are these sort of different strategies. And it was, it was occurring to me that there used to be, I think, much more discussion of euphemism, right? So when people would used to talk like the American army or the American state would talk about friendly fire and um, I, I don't know how to put it, like a, a sort of... Um, way like sort of um exporting democracy and like there was a way of talking about war which had a very euphemistic quality which i think we maybe move from the age of euphemism but then on the other hand you you constantly have people saying if you talk about x it's a dog whistle right so you have the kind of paranoid theory of language as well where you know, everyone is using words in a way to slightly mislead, but to speak to an audience who know the signal, but then other people know the signal and therefore they can say it's a dog whistle. And, you know, this is a very common accusation on the left that something is a dog whistle if you use particular words or whatever. So you kind of have like the philosophical theory of language, the paranoid theory of language, the euphemistic theory of language, and then the kind of, I don't know, the hysterical hyperbolic use of language, which is the kind of genocide inflation, everyone's a fascist use of language. I, I don't know. This is very, very yeah. rudimentary. Yeah, I think that, you know, the platonic way of thinking about language is that, of course, terms don't straightforwardly correspond with reality, but terms are an attempt to convey what's going on, uh, or they ought to be uh, an attempt to convey what's going on. And of course, our terms are going to fall short. The way we describe reality is going to fall short. And that's why we talk to each other about how we're using the terms yeah. to try to get them as close as we can get them. And there will always be a gap. They will never precisely correspond with reality. But that's what we're trying to do. I think 
people have argued you can't do that, that there's no point to trying to do that. And therefore, words are a way of constructing reality. And if you have a constructivist attitude that you use words to construct reality, then whatever it is that you normatively want, you just pick words on the basis of what will get you or what you think will get you where you want to go. But the this doesn't actually work. I think constructivism has been a huge mistake in international relations theory and in, in life in general, this idea that we can just construct reality. It doesn't work. And it's a, it's a kind of fetishizing of words. And in a way, it's taking the words more seriously than the Platonists ever took them. The Platonists mm. always recognized that words were not reality. Words mm. were a way of trying to get at it. Uh, but the constructivist thinks that words construct reality. And therefore, with words, they can make whatever kind of reality they want. The reality is that we will observe that the words don't really fit reality. And the result will be that we take all words less seriously, all language less seriously. And the people who have made careers as purveyors of words or as writers or as speakers will find that they have less and less and less influence as people become more and more sick of orators and rhetoricians. Uh, and as it becomes more and more obvious that these people are, seek to manipulate rather than persuade, uh, that they're not interested in, in pursuing agreement from someone they consider an equal. They're looking to subordinate other people to a pre uh, configured pre-fixed agenda. And the funny thing is the constructivists accuse the philosophers of this. Mm -hmm. They say that the philosophers have their schema for what they want and they try to impose it. But it's actually the constructivists who do this because the constructivists think that they are in position to construct reality with words. Excellent. Anyway, we're now at an hour, so we've got to wrap up. I thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side now. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.